This podcast is sponsored by Eddie Burnip. Accusing Kyle Harper of putting books in his sweatshirt since 1999. Subsequently blocking the powerful impact of his punch. Vlad Klaus is a comic artist living and working in New York City. His work encompasses graphic novels, print and digital marketing, as well as video game design. He's also published in children's books, textbooks, and magazines. One of his latest projects is called Turncoat. It can be found at turncoatcomic.com. His Twitter handle is at PlaidKlaus. That's at P-L-A-I-D-K-L-A-U-S. Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke. We out laughing. Yo, Deke. So you said you lived in Vancouver before? Yeah, no, I lived there for about three years. Uh, I was working as a game designer. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And my wife got her start there, too. She She's a makeup artist for film and television. Okay. So it was great, though, man. Have you been to Vancouver before? Um, no, unfortunately. I have to visit. I've been... I actually drove across Canada once in the middle of the winter in a shitty old Toyota Corolla. <laughs> which was kind of cool but uh the yeah. farthest i went was banff oh yeah yeah no it's good go just don't go in the winter it's like rainy all winter yeah eh? yeah yeah i gotta get out there but uh that's cool so you uh you were born in new york city though or no i was uh i was born in, like in a little country home in virginia ah. and uh yeah i came back to the east coast to be closer to family and made my way up to new york that's where all the action's happening. So, so I hear. Yeah. Although been, now every, all the artists are moving out because of the rent. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so I was thinking good. of that. Um, I mean, yeah. it's kind of like uh, Toronto or even yeah, like Vancouver situation where just prices of living is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's real crazy. Actually, um, comic artist friend of mine did did a comic about it. It's called The Red Hook. So no he way. Did like this. Yeah, it's like a superhero uh, parable. It's by this comic artist, Dean Haspel. Oh, I'm gonna write that down. Red Hook. Yeah, yeah. Nice. That's that's funny. Um, so yeah. So when did you move to New York then to get? Uh, where was it for a job initially, or did you just go to like? No. Uh, well, my wife, my wife's a makeup artist, like I said, and so for her, she has to be in the major cities. So that was the choice to move. Uh, um, I I shifted into freelancing by that point. So like, I, you know. I could be living in Hong Kong if I wanted or something. True, true. <laughs> Doesn't matter, but uh, but no, I like it. I mean, we're we're about ready to move, but we've had a good six years here. It's been great. Solid. Um, yeah. So I did watch the one YouTube clip I found of you. It's like uh, rare uh, footage of you on the internet. There, you you were <laughs> part of a contest, uh, and then you were mentioning oh, what was yeah, yeah what was that again? Uh, was it a New York based I- contest? Yeah, it's like this thing uh, started by a friend of mine. We're friends now. Uh, it's called Dare to Draw, mm-hmm. and it's sort of a way of bringing uh, artists together. Uh, it started off really cool. It was like a drink and draw. Oh. So it was like at a pub, and it was just a bunch of comic artists that got together and, and did figure drawing, and there was like a challenge at the end. It got bigger and bigger, and then he was trying a TV show for a while, and now he's like exploring... Uh, online media and stuff cool yeah so. they have like uh 
drink and draw type things around here. It's more like girls that get together and drink wine and paint. Right. <laughs> right. No, but this was cool because, like, the guy who runs it, Charles, he's, uh, first of all, he's a real nice guy, and he knows, like, all the famous comic artists, which is cool. Like, I got to meet Klaus Jansen, Alex Maliki, like, I mean, so everyone who's in the area. So okay. that was really cool. It's uh, a world that I'm, like, not a part of at all. Like, the, sure. if I think of comics, I just think of maybe Sin City or, like, more cartoony comics like Calvin and Hobbes and stuff. I wasn't, like, obviously Marvel oh, and whatnot, but... That's that's good stuff, too, though. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, the comics world is very bizarre, you know? I, I For me, I, I like the comic medium. I'm really into the comic book medium. Uh, but I, I love the industry as a whole. And a lot of the stuff that's being put out is kind of boring, <laughs> to be oh. honest. But but uh, I love the medium, the ability to tell stories with visual arts. Like, it's right. How else would you describe the comic kind of medium? Like, uh, to me, it just it's always like flashy and edgy. Like, there's I guess there's all types of comics, but isn't there this kind sure. of like air about the whole thing that's very even just the type that it's used, right? Like the the what is it that definitely font has it, there's like a there's a thing people assume when it comes to comics that it's like this low art, and I think it it this the industry's done itself a disservice several times. Uh, well, first of all, it started off as like humor stuff for children, mm-hmm. so and its foundation it's it's juvenile, which is fine, and then uh, it's evolved over the years and it's tried to mature. But you know, at its root, it was created as these like little strips for kids to read, and I think what's happened now is there's like this nostalgia buzz buzz where everyone's trying to like reclaim their youth and the feeling of the youth mm. only everyone's grown up so they're trying to create stories for like people in their 30s and 40s but the concepts are still these very adolescent concepts right so it, it's a weird it's a weird mutation of the original thing um but there's lots of like indie stuff being done uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of europe a lot of good stuff being come out of S- south america mm. um but yeah definitely in america and i guess canada mostly too comics are kind of seen as this lower art form which is fine it means you get to do stuff off the radar which is really cool that makes sense yeah yeah where no if uh, what is the history of comic books like where is the first comic coming from or what time period are we talking about when we're talking about like comic strips is it like sure yeah yeah no i mean basically they they started off as like cartoon strips in the newspaper Uh so everyone would get you know uh every day you'd get a new story and you'd catch up with these characters. And then eventually somebody published them in like a, a book. So like one of the stories they took, I can't remember the name of it, but they, they put it into a book and that became a comic. And then they actually just started producing just comics. Um, you know, have you heard of Will Eisner? Uh, no. Oh, he's, he's great. He's like the, like one of the most creative guys working back then. That was before comics really formulated what they were exactly. And he would do these, really cool un, uh, avant-garde layouts so there might not even be panels on a page it might just be bordered by like characters in each frame right. like their bodies would be the and you know he would just do these really cool arrangements on the page it was very artistic hmm. and uh, you know and then they Marvel and DC uh, started off when Superman got picked up and it just kind of took off from there right and I feel like it's been stuck in 
capes and tights for for a while, <laughs> half, eh? Yeah, like half a century or over half a century. Um, are comic books as popular now as they were at any time in the past, or is there a peak that they hit and now they're kind of? Oh well, definitely not as popular now. Although they're getting a resurgence with the films, and they're oh, getting this yeah. sort of tertiary or you know secondary audience. But no, the golden age was uh, in the six. In fact. One of the artists I was talking to was saying, like nowadays, if you can, you can sell twenty to fifty thousand copies a month. You're you're doing pretty good on a title, like you're doing all right. Um, back then, they were selling two hundred thousand to five hundred thousand a month of these. I mean, because comics were super cheap. It was like you pay a nickel and you get this book right. and you take it home. You know, it was this little thing for kids. Yeah. And uh, and uh, now, you know, if, if a book was selling twenty thousand back then, they they would be like, all right, you're, you're getting pulled. Your story's getting pulled. Um, so it's definitely not, it, it's never gotten back to that. In the 90s, it had this whole bizarre investor like bubble that built up. People were collecting cards and they started collecting comics because all the old comics, which were scarce because you know people's parents had burned them, thrown them away, uh, were worth <laughs> all this money. Yeah, and so these collectors, these business guys came in, they started, they saw an opportunity and then then the industry reacted to that, seeing that there was all this money coming in. So they actually started printing, like, you, you've heard of variant covers, you know, where they do multiple versions of a cover for okay. a book. Yeah. And they started printing, like, ten variants, because that way collectors would have to buy all ten, because they don't know which one would be valuable. Right. And so, like, all this money was being made. It was crazy when you hear the stories. Artists would start off, like, in the industry coming in, and they would make, like, 80,000, 120,000 just coming in. You know, and the big guys like Lee could be making half a million a year easy, and uh, that's when Image started. They they broke off from uh, from DC and Marvel, a bunch of artists, and they just started making their own stuff, and they all became millionaires. <laughs> okay, so but it's... now, but now most comic artists are making like you know fifty and under. I would say like sixty percent. Okay. Now, so did it? Is there a lot of like? Uh, had there been a lot of splintering off into like a, just more independent artists now? That like you're producing your own comic right now? Um, yeah, yeah. Turncoat, yeah. right? Yep. Uh, well, actually, no. Turncoat's been it was uh it's been picked up by T Pub. It's been it's been published by them. Oh, okay. Uh, the one I'm working on now is it's not an, we're not announcing it yet. Oh, but, okay. Uh, but it's in it's it is an indie. We got some investors on it. So we're going to self, self-publish, self which is really cool. I mean, yeah, this stuff wasn't even available, you know, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. I mean, kick, I guess Kickstarter's been around that long, but it's really new to be able to just, you know, create your own content and then sure. get it directly to your fans. And so. that's with even with music and with uh, video games and, all, I mean, everything now, but just publishing books even or, like, podcasts, right? You're just, just yeah. content and just distribute it and then people just pick it up, like... Yeah, it's pretty. It's a pretty amazing time. I mean, yeah. uh, f- for me, it's kind of ideal. I think for for people who are like deep rooted artists that don't don't like all the little compromises you have to do along the way, it's it's kind of an ideal situation, really. <laughs> like, yeah, you can kind of do directly what you want. There's not a lot of middle management or anything. True, you can just put it out there. It's, yeah, so, so as long as you can edit yourself, I mean, that's that's the problem. Sure. There's a lot of bad stuff put out too. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Um, so now you freelance full time. So did you start and in, in, in what was your career start? Like, did you freelance right off the bat or did you, uh, have to work at it a bit to get to where you're at to be able to just freelance? Uh, no, it was a, I mean, it was a long road. I, I, uh, 
moved to Vancouver and went to a, it was a really cool school you know as far as schools go um, it uh, Vancouver Film School so I learned 3D modeling there and uh, still paying the loan off <laughs> but I, I started working in the game industry right off right from there one of the things I liked about their school is they had a really high placement rate so like oh, I worked yeah. really hard it was a year thing and then um, I started working in games I worked at EA for a while and then I worked at a smaller game company called Hellbent uh, and then I moved back to the East Coast and I was working as a web designer for a while um, all the while just sort of illustrating on the side and picking up small clients here and there and then uh, eventually I found a gig teaching 3D uh, and that was sort of like my parachute out of the corporate office so I was I was doing about I did about six years in corporate offices hmm. before making the leap and then it's been about seven or eight years since then but it's it's like a it's a long it's a you got to find your way out if, if the corporate gig doesn't work for you. That's what I've always thought. Yeah, people can get stuck there, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends. Some people like it, the, yeah. the comfort. For me, though, I, the thing that I never liked getting bored, and I felt <laughs> like in a, at a lot of corporate jobs you get bored because you know either there's not always work for you that's relevant or you get stuck on sort of the same type of work for a long time because a lot of companies, and it makes sense, but they, they do at work. So like if they find a... Um, a niche that that's making money, you know, they'll keep doing. It. I was working at this place, Hellbent. I loved everyone I worked with was really cool, um, <clears throat> but they were doing Lego games, mm-hmm. which uh, I mean, they're fun for like a year. But then uh, after a year of doing <laughs> Lego, you know, it, unless you really love Lego, which right. I, I mean, I, I was never obsessed or anything. It's kind of like, well, I'm ready to move on to something else, and I was pretty sure before I left there that um, we were going to do another Lego game. <laughs> and I was kind of like, I don't know if I can do this for another year. Right. And, you know, and then I went to web design, and, and it's sort of this a similar thing where you just you kind of do the same thing for a very long time. It just was artistically stifling. So Yeah, I feel the same way. Like I've, uh, I'm in a lot of different fields too, like uh, just drawing and music and DJing yeah. and different things. So like I'm the same personality. Like I, you know, yeah, I just get bored pretty quick and like to change it up that's why i started this podcast i'm like what else could i do you know like (laughs) awesome man yeah yeah that's great that you do that i mean i think that's what as an artist you kind of want to toy around with all the things that are happening in culture otherwise you like uh if you look at a lot of painters the 20th century they you know they were being influenced by everything that was happening it's not like they were just painting that's why painting evolved and changed so quickly because i mean obviously it came about because of the camera you know, so p- painting was no longer just capturing exactly what was in front of you. Um, but in general, I think artists sort of have this desire to like look around and see what's going on. Yeah. Well, it's fun. it reminds me of like just Da Vinci, like just different artists back then who were great always had other skills that they they were like he was like cutting apart bodies and doing yeah, anatomy yeah. and stuff or yeah. like whatever. Yeah, I mean, because. Honestly, like the actual act of creating art, it can be very tedious, right? Like you're any any type of art, design, um, anything. You're because you're you're so intently focused, and in order to become really proficient and good at something, you have to spend all these hours perfecting the technique, and it becomes 
um, not fully robotic, but it becomes a technique, something you're applying one step after the other. Sure. And I feel like to keep that stuff alive and to make sure you don't fall into a groove where you're just literally doing the exact same motions over and over, it it helps to sort of step outside that and like, you know, like you said, uh, try something completely different like music or dance, but something that's still a form of expression. Yeah, that makes sense, and it's uh, yeah, it seems like I mean, creative fields. There's there's always a link, like whether it's music to art or art to dance, like you said, or just there's always some link, you know, just just the creative fields. Yeah, um, I think it's I think it's a, a feeling you get. Like uh, I don't know about you, but when you're when you're hitting the vein on a creative project, like when you're really in sync with it, yeah. there's a feeling that you get that it's not like any drug or anything else. It's it's yeah. like better than all that stuff. Like, it's what the, would you describe that as? Like a type of zone? Like when basketball players are in the zone and they hit all the threes? Like I don't know what you describe. Yeah, that it's as. just like I think it's being fully present. Like because it's so hard. The there's so much going on in the mind at all times, and uh, they say like when an archer shoots a bow, like the moment they re- are about to release, there's no calculations because they calculated everything. Yeah, and I feel like. Um, with art, it's like that you're constantly, you're trying to obtain something that you've observed or something, some, you're trying to perfect something, but every once in a while you get into a zone where your body's so attuned and it knows exactly what to do and what you're trying to achieve, and you just are in the middle of that act, and there's no, yeah, there's not a lot of thought with it, you're just kind of in the zone. <laughs> I yeah, guess I mean, it, I, just, I just made me think of driving, I know that's like a kind of lame example of, to compare to art but like being no, no. in that 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 zone and not thinking your body it's just a lot of your your body is just doing this thing that it's kind of learning yeah. to do yeah yeah it's like you're just stepping out of the way which is nice you're just like you're just watching it happen which is the fun part very strange yeah, so yeah. we're talking about uh you were, you were mentioning putting in hours um like how much do you draw do you draw constantly do you take breaks from it do you like what is your style that way yeah i mean so growing up i i drew constantly and uh luckily for me i actually am a really good auditory learner so in school i drew all day long and you know a lot of teachers think you're not paying attention but it actually helped shut off the creative part of my mind that would wander instead of listening to the teacher. So, so I drew, you know, all throughout school and when I got home a lot. Um, but professionally, I, I guess something clicked and, and I realized doing illustration on the side of these other jobs was sort of hindering the growth that I was hoping to achieve. Like I, I could always draw pretty well. Um, but the thing about being an, uh, an artist is you also your ability to critique yourself is just a little bit ahead of your ability to create. And if you don't see yourself making strides towards things that you're like gaps in your in your skill or your technique, then then it can kind of eat at you. So when I started thinking seriously professionally, I, I made myself just dedicate. You know, I'd get up at six a.m. I mean, before I was doing professionally, I would I would stay up to like three in the morning drawing a comic from like 10 at night to 3 in the morning. So, I mean, I've always pursued it, but nowadays it's like when I did Turncoat last year, uh, I literally worked six days a week for 10 to 14 hours a day. Like, and that sure. that nearly killed me. And I, I, Since then, I've been trying to like pull back and, and realize, uh-huh. but, but comics, I mean, it's a lot of hours you got to put in to make an image. And, you know, every page has like 
six scenes in it, you know, four to six scenes. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think the whole 10,000 10, hours thing holds true. It's you legit, just have, yeah. It is. I mean, because like I said before, it's you're turning your body into a machine in some sense, and you want to have the creative part be, you want to have the mechanical stuff be secondary and the creative part be in the front forefront of your brain. Yeah. So it's like it's like when you're playing video games and you've gotten so good at it, you're just like zapping through a level, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. It's like you're not even thinking. So, yeah, you got to draw a lot, I mean, if you want to get there. Yeah, no, when you said you were, you focus on the, the aspects of your drawing that, that would get you to a professional level, would you like um, your progress, would you focus on certain things and then say, yeah. okay, I got to draw that better, like hands, like, oh, I need to focus on hands for a bit to perfect that, let me let me kind of study that and get into that, is that a... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I mean, and the thing about comics that sucks is you got to do everything, but it's, yeah. it's not necessarily like hands, a lot of people think it's like specific, I mean, there's a lot of figures you need to know anatomy, but, but you have to see, really be honest about your blind sights, yeah, so like, a lot of people avoid perspective because it's difficult. And mm. I, I avoided it for years. And then it wasn't until I was 24, 25 that I ever actually picked up a perspective book. <laughs> and I was like, I got to really understand this. Because there's a lot of cheats. And it's interesting. Once you really start learning perspective, because what you're doing is you're using a geometrical, mathematical series of, of techniques to convince an eye that it's looking in three dimensions. Uh, and coming from a 3D background helped a little bit because like I, you know, I, I became familiar with 3D space, but then when you're uh, confined to a two-dimensional surface, all the rules change, and you quickly realize that you've picked up a lot of bad cheats that you've seen other artists do, or not even other artists do, but you, you've seen what other artists do and you imitate it without yeah. fully understanding why they're making marks and stuff. Right. So, like, I made myself for five or six months straight just, like, go through this book and execute every single... It was, it was a, like, a 400-page book. Go mm. through every single technique and, like, understand what's actually happening on a practical level. Yeah. And then only after that can you, like, kind of throw all that stuff out and freehand it a little bit once you get used to it. Sure. Um, but, you know, and it's other stuff, too. It's, like, studying light and shadow, recognizing when you're... You're you're using line too much versus like uh, other textures to represent form, and I mean there's so many things. But that's the nice thing about being an artist is there's like a life's worth of things you have to. Learn. Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Like, there's literally, I mean, it's pre I mean, it seems endless. Like the the amount you could just perfect your your skills. Right, right. And like to someone like me who looks at your art, I'm like, okay, this guy's like he's perfected it. But I'm sure you look no, at your own no, stuff no, and you're no. like, no way. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, yeah. You know, just a little note. You talked about perspective. I wonder if the book that you were mentioning does it talk about the history of perspective in art? Uh, yeah, it gave, it gave an intro to it. It's it's fascinating, especially when you go to a museum like uh, the Met in New York. It's a great place to just pop in, and you can see the whole history of you know the art world. Yeah, um, and you can see that people didn't quite understand it didn't early get it, on. No. <laughs> yeah, and things are off. Like they're just a little off. Like they're hitting. They the first thing they understood was vanishing points, which is like the first thing you learn because it's a simple idea it's all railroad tracks you know if you th eventually in the horizon they're going to meet a point and you just make the two lines connect you know <laughs> yeah like it's so, yeah sorry go on yeah no and then but then you can see that they started to like learn other things like oh 
And actually, the vanishing points, they actually all hit at the same horizon if they're sitting on the same plane. And then they started learning more and more about like how things rotate. But then it was like, I want to say the 15th century, and I can't remember the guy's name offhand, which I feel bad about. But uh, uh, I got it here. Is it uh, Brunicelli? Yeah. 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 He, he just started developing these techniques, and you can see this clear distinction where that became an obsession for the artists. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it was almost like it became showing off that they had this understanding um, yeah. of, of how to execute it, which is it's fascinating. And then, uh, yeah, and then they threw it away in the 20th century. And they were like, it was all about, you know, texture, color, emotion. You know, it became less and less about the technical skills because... Is that when, like, pop art came in or something? Is that the same thing? Yeah, so, like, the, uh, the camera just changed the whole world. I mean, eventually, I mean, think about it this way. If, you, if you're super wealthy and rich and you want to show off yourself before cameras you know the only yeah. way to do it was to pay someone that got really good at making things look like life using oil paints you right. know um and then when the camera came around that sort of st- or you know not just portraits but you know landscapes if you wanted anything any kind of decoration it was all painting or sculpture and then the camera came around and blew all that market away uh yeah. and then people were kind of left with well like what makes this relevant right and and uh so they just started exploring, and, and pop art was a little bit later. Pop art, I think, oh, true, yeah. Pop art was a reaction to sort of like painters becoming a commodity in the sense of like collectors were trying to find out what the next big thing was. And pop art's response was like, "Oh well, if 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 these different things are art because of the artist, then like let's try to elevate things." Again, it goes back to comics being seen as a low art form. Yeah. Uh, so they took it and repurposed it. Interesting. Sorry, my I'm like re- pretty into art history. Like, no, that's you know, cool, man. There were a couple classes in college that just blew me away. When you start to think, realize like how much, like society itself, pretty much influences the artists more than than themselves yeah. in a lot of ways, which is kind of weird to think about. Like, because I, I used to want to be a Renaissance painter when I was really young. Like, I wanted to be that good, right? <laughs> and as I got older, I realized those are like a product of the time in a lot of ways. Yes. I mean, you could you could still do that now, and if you got to be the best one in the planet, you can make a living. But it's not like everyone pursuing that is going to make a living in it. Right. If that makes any sense. So you kind of have to find your markets. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, art history for me too was the most interesting class I've ever taken in a post secondary. Like I went for graphic design. Um, uh huh. But. Art history was this very strange. I mean, I'll tell you what. I was doing drugs at that time, but I wouldn't even be high, and I would go to art history and just have this <laughs> no, helps, out of body no. experience. <laughs> oh, it does too. Yeah, but, yeah. Like I remember sitting there. Just it's a weird, um, you know, because they take you from obviously the begin. Well, yeah, obviously the cave paintings and stuff to right, right. to modern day, and you get this kind of like compacted version of everything we've done artistically as humans from the beginning and it's really strange to watch its progression in the course of like a half of a semester course yeah and i mean yeah, keep going man. no well that's but. when that's when i saw that uh the perspective thing really tripped me out for a while because the i believe whatever the painting was before that they before they showed us uh brunichelli and the linear perspective stuff they showed this like the christian art period thing where uh I forget who, what the painting was, but it's like Jesus on the on some 
some rock cliff uh, looking uh-huh. out at a boat and there's like some people in the boat and like you said before where they they, they didn't get the vanishing points and stuff it's like they're just yeah, kind they of just plastering put, they put stuff higher up yeah they, they put people yeah. higher up and lower and just it looks like a weird mario game you know it's all yeah. like that scrolling mario type like yeah that was an early technique was just like they recognized oh if things are further away they're actually higher up on the on the canvas yeah Be- because like the placement yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think it's like you're looking at the psyche of humans evolving too, which is really yeah. cool. Like it's a you know because it reflects the like I said it reflects the time period as as well as the the inner mind of the artist. Like a lot of people get into the thinking about the artist themselves, but really if you look at art history, you're looking at the reflection of a society and how humans are actually evolving over time and how we're understanding more and more things and. You know, that's such a good point because it, it makes me think of, um, you know, when we look, so a lot of people, we look at history of um, just the biology and like brain size and different things like that. And people say, oh, you know, I wonder if the cavemen, you know, maybe they kind of were pretty close to us in our psyche, but they just didn't have, uh, you know, language or music or whatever it might be. They say, well, you know, they're pretty, pretty similar to us. But like you said, when you look at uh, the stuff like perspective, I mean, it seems like it's we would know that it seems like we would just know how to do linear perspective it's like it's weird that someone just came up with it and then no, like, this is how you do it and okay. it's tricks man that's the thing uh, terence mckenna talked about this a lot the idea that he, there's two things going on there's the individual which the evolution of the individual hasn't changed that much but society is like its own entity it's like yes. its own thing right so like when you look at art history you're actually looking at the entity of human society evolving the same way you look at like a human fetus developing into a human being right you know like you you, there's no way to be even if you let's say you're einstein you know the cliche you're born einstein but you're born einstein and you're in a set of a cave a primitive cave society there's only so much you can do with that intelligence like you might get really good at making some kind of hunting calculations for the for the group or you yeah. might, you know, what, whatever your, whatever way you use your intelligence, it's going to be guided by the needs of the society. So, you know, it takes a long time to get from surviving, survival mode to uh, having the time to like create decorations for your walls. <laughs> no, that makes so <laughs> much like, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that's why as an artist, like, it, it can get frustrating looking through the history of artists and being like, oh man, this is so great, but. uh you also have to realize you're just a product of your time and you have to kind of be the best at whatever you're feeling drawn towards, I guess. Well, so. it's so true and it's such a like an existential kind of uh, thing to think about, right? Because, I mean, you're born into this world kind of, you know, you got your genes that kind of apparently are passing down certain certain skills or whatever, but uh, then you got the technology that's existing in the world that, like, you, like we've been building, right. like this entity has been growing and building, right? Yep. And then you just yep. become a part of it, and you kind of you interact with it, and through creativity, you use it to create something that's partly yours, but it's also yep. partly the society and the entity that. Let me ask you a question because you're a creator too. Do you ever get that anxiety where you're like you you realize? You've only got so much time on this planet, first of all, to figure it out or figure anything out, really. Figure anything. And then to like try and translate that in some sort of medium yeah. <clears throat> so that you can somehow convey the, the realizations or the concepts you've had, like these temporal yeah. feelings or understandings of things. Yeah. Is that, what then, art is? is that what art is? And like, is that what creativity yeah. is, you think? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's different things. I mean, that's yeah. one of the most frustrating things about the commercial world. Um, trying to find the the ways of expressing yourself inside those confines, because you know, a lot of it is just uh, so micromanaged and specific to like what the needs are of of selling a product or a concept or so yeah. it leaves very little for the creative. But I think when it comes to like creating art, that the main difference there is that you're you're trying to evoke some kind of feeling or s- sense of, uh, in the sense of, in the sake of comics, you're trying to convey a transportation into the world that you've created with your mind. And I mean, that's one of the things I have most frustrations with um, looking at the, the the big two publishers is that I think they have these they have these house styles and they have these like pre-created worlds that are their money makers oh. you know like the, the 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 marvel world and the dc world they have they have these worlds they've created and the artists have to work within those worlds right so they're a lot less free to just sort of like go to town and and i don't know like there's already it. an iron man here you can't right, come up with an right. iron suit and like- <laughs> you can change the style of how you draw iron man but you you can't I don't know, you can't completely change the world to be your own world. And one of the things I love to do when I get a project is like, I don't know if you've looked at a lot of the pages I do, but I'll throw all this little stuff into the background. Like I'll spend, I'll hammer out, I don't know, I'll spend like three hours on a background that, that's maybe just a coffee shop or something. Yeah. But I'll have all these characters having little actions and stuff. And part of this came from, like you mentioned, going to art class when you were stoned or whatever. But <laughs> I, so when I was in college, I used to draw when I was stoned. And I realized there's this like transportative quality to uh, really trying to capture what's inside your own psyche and trying to be completely present with the moment of the art being created at the board. And if you can make the scene feel alive to you as you're drawing it, I think when someone's witnessing it or looking at it they some of that comes through you know as opposed to if you're just technically executing and you're just drawing uh to make it look realistic or you know looking at a photo and drawing from a photo i think it looks dead and no one can really explain why it looks dead yeah but i I think it's because you're missing that connection it's hard to explain no (laughs) i'm sort of trying to get what you're saying and i think it what it reminds me of is so when say you're drawing and someone's watching you draw and you're you know the, just the 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 small, the small movements throughout time that where you're just you know a little brush here a little brush there and you yeah. you're not thinking you're not thinking out each move it's like we were talking before it's kind of a mixture of you uh, the creative juice is flowing you a bit of thinking I guess and your technique but then also just like some other thing like people call right. it muse or whatever right it's like all these things happening together at once and you can't quite explain how or why but it's yeah it's yeah it's strange <laughs> and that's what I, like the muse is a great metaphor because it's so true like and there's no explanation for it that's the most frustrating thing is you'll have a day where uh, just everything is so easy yeah. everything's so easy you're just fully connected um and it's like a meditative feeling you're just you're there time's vanished um all, everything else in the material world's gone and you're just doing the th- the act of creating this thing and the moment you question why you're doing it or like any of that comes into play like oh i'm doing this because i want this to be a success and that success will bring me money oh i have bills right now is this the right job i'm you know what i mean like 
the moment you open the door for any other thought, it seems like in that in that moment, uh, the muse starts to like completely vanish or disappear. Yeah, and every, everything becomes a struggle, especially when you start to question the outcome of the act. If that makes any sense, like no, it does. Yeah, like you're making a record or something, and you start to say, "Well, are people going to think this sounds like pop music?" Or, yeah. <laughs> and then that that affects the muse or the act of the art itself. It starts to like dilute it totally does um it it reminds me of because i'm a musician too so like i find it more so in that in that world uh just making yeah making music it's like especially when you're involved in a local scene and you got people to compare yourselves to and like what what, people always ask musicians uh especially like independent artists oh that sounds cool but what are you going to do with it like people always right. have this expectation of you. Like you, you have to. If you're a musician, well, your end goal must be to become Drake or someone and become like, a pop star and yeah. then sell millions of records. Otherwise, why are you doing it? Exactly. Isn't that weird? Like, yeah, no, it's real weird. I think, I, but I think it's it's a product of just this. I don't know. I, I guess it's an. You could say it's in all cultures. I, I feel like I've heard from people that it's less so in Europe, but I don't know if that's true. Hmm. But it's definitely a capitalist-driven idea. Of like the end result or the the outcome of your of your creation is has, on top. Has to you be as be important. Well, yeah, just but like all those things that you listed, they're just so material and for the the pleasure of the the body of you. It has like nothing to do with the thing itself that you're creating. Mm. Like it's great if those things come, but they're not necessarily a representation of like you doing the most authentic piece of art that you could, if that makes any sense. Yeah, like... I know it sounds very artsy-fartsy, and I'm not, like... I'm not saying I'm trying to be, um, you know, Monet or anything when I'm doing a comic book, but there is a sense of, like, I don't want to compromise... I mean, think about it this way. You only live in this world once, you know? I I don't know if reincarnation or anything like that exists. as far as we know... Or even if we do know, like you're only aware of this one existence, yeah, and you're only able to do to do one take at it. So I don't know if 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 that's true, then like you have something that you can express that literally only you can express. And sure, there can be different versions of it, but somewhere in the root of it, like there's something only you can do. And if you're changing that in any way to like in hopes to please an audience or a I don't know, find the niche or, or land the right the right project that's going to get you all this money, then I feel like you're, you're doing a disservice to humanity, going back to art history. Like, imagine if, uh, you know, imagine if somebody like, uh, I don't want to say Picasso, because that sounds too cliche. <laughs> uh, do you know Max Ernst? Uh, it sounds familiar, but I don't know. He's, he's a German expressionist artist, and he did, did a lot of art after or around World War II. Uh, and it was just these crazy, trippy, emotional paintings about what he was going through. And, like, if he had had any desire to, like, I don't know, paint the norm because that's that was a career path, yeah. you wouldn't have these just, I don't know, no, like, people could try to paint like Max Ernst or any of these other artists that you could list, but it's not the same. I mean, it, it can trick the layman, I guess. Mm-hmm. When you're standing in front of it, it's just not the same. I don't know. There's like this one voice that we all have if you're, if you're an artist. Even if you're not an artist, I think everyone has like, 
I don't know. I know it sounds stupid. I know we're the millennial generation of like everyone's special because I don't think everyone's <laughs> special. But I I do think if you're going to even step into the arena, you you need to be as authentic as you can. Well, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I I, I know a lot of uh, my peers and and kind of colleagues in the the music world at least like we're the small city we're from, St. Catharines. Uh, it's you know it's in between Niagara Falls and Toronto. Um, if if anyone around here kind of wants to like make it, so to speak, they got to go to Toronto. Uh, pretty much uh, in a lot of fields and music, especially. But there's still like crazy talented people here who right. don't, don't have many views on their videos. Uh, you know, they've maybe done like a handful of shows around town, but they're like totally expressing themselves from the core and literally don't give a fuck what anyone else says. See, to me, that's like so. I mean, I get chills when I hear that. That's so special, and I feel like pop culture music or anything that once it's hit the pop culture it's not that it's become it's not like the artists are less talented or anything but uh it definitely starts to morph and when you can be in these like places where you know these events are only being seen by a select few people yeah like on a mystical level i just think it's so special there was this musician in college alex chin i think was his name but he's, he doesn't do music anymore and he but when he would get the stage, there was like an undeniable, like third person in the room, you know, like mm-hmm. a, some kind of muse or spirit. And when he would play, like whole room dead silent, and it was captivating. And you knew that, like, like you said, no one else in the rest of the world is seeing how great this is or this yeah. performance. But it's just shared with this small group of people, and there's something like really cool about that. Yeah, um, that reminds me, like around here, there's this one dude. Uh who was just kind of a wicked piano player and also had a crazy voice, like kind of like uh, maybe like an Elton John or something, just like amazingly talented. But again, like he didn't make it anywhere big. I think he moved out west or something and just still plays in bars and whatnot. But yeah, yeah. the type of just, it was like kind of a, uh, just a, a typical saloony kind of bar around here. And it, it would just people, the dancing that people did was like, there was just no groove like created like that anywhere else. And even, you know, compare it to anything a big city or a big show or a pop more popular artist and it was just this guy had this just this inner fucking soul that like captivated all of us in that moment and it was like yeah yeah dude i mean that's so i don't know if we're gonna get into like anything like spiritual or or anything like that but like i feel like that's what separates um a human experience from a non-living experience if that makes any sense like we we have this ability to connect with each other on a level that I think's like it's beyond just the 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 digestive regulatory systems and the sexual reproduction. Like it's this yeah. other thing. And yeah. I feel like that stuff when it doesn't get fueled, you just get really boring people that are just really unhappy and dissatisfied, but on this level where they don't even know. It's yeah. like having it's like you're bleeding out and you but it's invisible blood, and <laughs> you don't even <laughs> see what's happening. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And I, but I do feel like I had more of that, uh, those experiences in college. And I think as you get older, and you get kind of put into these different structures, you know, like your career or whatever else it is, you start to to lose those spontaneous moments a little bit, or at least. There's the potential to lose it. It's hard to keep it. Yeah, I hear that. Um, it reminds me of just kind of the 
the thing that a lot of people say about science and just how it can't really explain certain things like that, like spiritual things, if you will. Uh, it also, it's like, uh, you'll see a science exp- uh, uh, te- uh, results come out that, you know, something about psychology, like, oh, they can, they've discovered that music makes you happy or, you know, stupid shit like that right. where you're like, I already knew that. I didn't need a scientific study to tell us that but we need scientific studies that uh yeah yeah physics and different things like and maybe they can science will eventually explain a lot of things like that but like you said how we only live once it's like the science doesn't matter when you're there in the club dancing to that guy playing piano like it just literally you're not it doesn't matter it's not i think i think plato had it right years ago i mean people have said about this stuff for so long but the idea of the the shadows in the cave like are we if we're strapped down and looking forward and all we can see is our shadows in a cave, like, uh, are yeah. we our shadows or are we ourselves? I mean, that's, it's so frustrating when you talk to like someone who's like hard bent and, and any one thing, like if someone's like, I'm absolutely sure that, um, you know, there's a, a, a male spiritual God that runs us all. Or if you talk to someone that's like, I'm pretty, I'm positive this is a material universe and we're just matter that spontaneously happened to be able to move. And that's, you know, it's so stupid to get locked into any of those things. I mean, have you ever done this? Have you ever tried to like think about the the two main uh, explanations of the universe? The one is that there was nothing and then all of a sudden there was an explosion and then there's everything. Or Or like there was a creator that's been there for eternity like both of those concepts are just insane. There's yeah, like we have like, no yeah. logical explanation, and I don't think we can. Like I don't think it's. If you do, if you've ever done, have you ever done mushrooms or anything uh, yes. like? Multiple okay, times. Okay, so <laughs> so you hit this moment where you have a realization that like you just can't understand everything. Like you can't, and and I feel like when people get really cocky about any subject, you know, and they spend their life pursuing it and thinking about it. It's really just like a dog that's gotten really excited that it found a, a really big stick. It's like trying to show it to everyone, but at the end of the yeah. day, it's like, oh yeah, that's a really that's a that's a good that's a big stick. You still have no idea what's going on. Like yeah, like there's a whole forest out there. Idea. You got a stick, but yeah, yeah, it's like none of us have any clue what's going on. It's fascinating and it's entertaining and it keeps us like entertained from the cradle to the grave when we like pursue trying to understand everything with with science or anything else but i think they're all equally just these passing obsessions in this in a one life so like i had this crazy idea when i had eaten too many edibles one time where i was like thinking about how we're like i was looking at a clock and then you know an hour later i was looking at the clock again i was like oh my god an hour has gone by and then i realized like because i didn't want the day to end it's like oh an hour has gone by and I was like, that's kind of like our whole, whole lives is we're just, we don't want this thing to go by too quickly. But at the same time, we're like, don't want to be stuck in any one place. And then I feel like people, people either get overwhelmed with the idea of, of life being something that happens forever, like the idea of uh, an experience happening forever. And so they, they try to burrow into the idea of materialism and be like, oh, no, it's safe. Like, when the body dies, I never have to experience anything again. Yeah. Or, or they burrow into, like, the other one. some really silly, playful explanation of, like, no, 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 we go to a magical place when it's over. Or like, But, yeah. I mean, the truth is, like, oh, fuck, 
Who knows? <laughs> like, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Who cares is one that I often think. Um, um, what else? I don't know. Like, so, it, sometimes it feels like I grasp uh, whatever it is. Like, I think I kind of know it, but I can't explain it. I'm like, I'm good. But then, yeah, you always change your mind, like, one way or the other. Like, uh, someone on a podcast yesterday I was listening to was mentioning uh, that he, you know, he has a zest for life, so he's afraid of death. And then he has a friend that uh, has such a zest for life that he doesn't care. He <laughs> like, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, it's like that's either or, that's rad. That's whatever. like the that's the place I try to get to is like because most anxieties I feel like spring from some sort of either like internal pain that you're having or uh, just the general anxiety about death. And I think people not wanting to confront that they'll like you know they'll, it'll express itself in other ways. Like somebody be yelling about their position in line on a Dwayne Reed because they're unhappy how slow it's going. But it's like, ultimately you're just like not fully present and you're worried about some kind of either unfolding future or like how your past has gypped you to the present moment. But if you, if you really sink in, I mean, and it sucks. I don't, I don't do it. I mean, I used to do, like I said, I used to smoke in college. I don't really do that now, but I think one of the things that helped me with was getting to meditation and sinking into the present moment um, because the more you sink into the present, you realize like it's gonna be okay. It already is. It already yeah, is okay. everything is okay. <laughs> People need to think about that more often. But it's hard, like with the, especially I think modern society and just the structure of um, the economy, different you know jobs, like things. Things are very strange now for people. It's like especially in these, all these countries that are having shit times with like whatever. They're, yeah. They're, yeah. I mean, but again, like you have to like start a dialogue to explain that. I feel like there's like spring, like there's uh, situations and things that spring up that suck, and then you you deal with it and you have to deal with it, and then people obsess with the fact that things happen, and you know, really intellectual, smart people try to fix the bad things and make less of them, but yeah. ultimately, I don't know. I just feel like it's just filled with with these awesome moments and these awful moments, and we try to define that. Well, life should be more good moments and not as many bad moments. Yeah. But then, but then you hear about stories about people like overcoming awful moments, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know. I was because a friend of mine was recommending this philosophical podcast recently, and I can't remember. I think it was called you. They were talking about you, you, utilitarian philosophy. Oh God, I, I can't. It's too new in my mind. I don't remember. But uh, the idea was like try to make laws that cause the least amount of pain for everyone mm-hmm. uh but then it's like how do you measure that because if well, well okay if we kill one person and it causes less pain for everyone it causes that person a lot of pain but what if the thing that pain was causing was just a little bit of pain for everyone else so it's like again it goes back to the idea of we're just humans and we're just trying so hard to like structure and fix and figure everything out yeah but like ultimately i don't think we're even the ones really I don't know. I don't think we're even the ones making a lot of the decisions. I know that sounds crazy to say, but I, I think ultimately. Do you mean do you mean us as in like uh, lower Earthlings uh, compared to like? Right, right, okay. yeah. Like yeah. us as an in individual people. Yeah. I think we make these like we're making little quick calculation decisions and stuff, but I think there's probably most likely some kind of overmind, like collective conscious. I mean, you've heard, have you ever heard how herds can sense when there's like. A distressed member of their pack, and they 
over a mile away, they'll run back and say, like, there's some kind yeah. of communication happening with animals that we don't understand. Yeah. And we're animals, so I think we have that. And I think there's some kind of weird overmind that's, like, guiding us. Look no further than ants on an anthill. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't, you pick one of them out and you put them separate from the colony and they'll just, like, walk around in circles for eternity. Yeah. And I feel like that's what we're doing, too. So it feels good to think we have, like, these little... Like, we're making all these decisions, and we think we know why we're making them, but I don't know. I feel like we're just reacting. No, I, I hear what you're saying, and I feel like the, the, the hive mind or the, the collective mind, whatever way you want to look at that, like, some people say, oh, it's bullshit, it's kind of like parapsychology, or it's it's this, you know, fantasy, fantasy kind of idea that doesn't have any basis in reality, but... Yeah, I I just have a. It's hard to just say you have a feeling that it's there. I wish I had yeah. a better. I'd like to hash it out. Maybe you know, just I like to hash out the idea and somehow kind of explain it better. But uh, there's there's something there, like the, the 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 feeling people look at you when they're when you're not looking at them, and uh, just right, odd right. coincidences, and and you know. I mean, I, I I'm a guy that sees both sides of the coin, though, too, with every argument like that. When I, right. you know, I always look at both, and I'm like, ah, I could see it both ways, but either yeah, way, I mean, there's I, a feeling. It's I don't have beliefs; like, I have thought experiments. That's, yeah, because I feel again, it goes back to like, what the fuck can we know? I don't think we can really know anything. I think we can, I don't know, we can reassure ourselves, we can find commonalities amongst other people's experiences and stuff, but yeah, it's really hard to get them like to lock it down. Especially if you, I mean, do you know anything? You've heard a little bit about string theory. Sure. I'm like an amateur in understanding it, but but my understanding is like they, um, they can't quite figure out how things, how particles are deciding to to go through these slits. Like they either, uh, they sometimes act like a wave and they sometimes act like a particle, and it tends to have a preference to showing us. Uh, if we're looking at the end result, it'll change the way it acts, basically. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, and again, if you go down any one of these rabbit holes, it's weird because, like, you're, you're using an explanation of an observation to justify a whole experience. But, I mean, to me, that it kind of says, like, reality's going to give you an experience, and then your mind's going to, tr- is the thing that's justifying what's actually happening. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And then, like, and then again, going back to that Uber mind or the collective conscious, it's like, I think somehow we're all networked together. And if you're around people who are in agreement of what's happening, uh, you build this larger version of the collective conscious. So like, in a sense, I kind of like to think that everything's sort of imaginary, but it is <laughs> structured and permanent in the sense of like, we're all experiencing it together. But then, you know, you go, you, first of all, I should say my brother's bipolar. So I've like, been around a bipolar person they're not in the same reality you're in. Like right. they have a whole completely different set of rules. And when you're around them and they're they're being they're manic, like the world you're in starts to twist a little and you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? you get a and sense it, for what world they're in in some way. Yes, things will start happening that are like you can quickly justify, but they're yeah. very weird and they're very coincidental, more so than like if you're with someone else. And I don't know again where that comes if you're just percepting perceiving things more or at a faster rate, but like to an observer, if you were just going to give your, like, how this feels explanation, it feels like their presence is actually slightly twisting the experiences you're having. Okay, that makes me re- – <laughs> that's so funny because here's one example of that. There's this trail by our by my house here. And we- Hello? Dude, just dropped my phone. Oh, wait. 
Okay, I got you back there. Okay. All right, let's start like you again. Yeah. Okay. So that reminds me of uh, there's this there's this trail by our house here, and uh, we go there and we play Pokemon on this trail. Nice. And there's this kid who lives there near there and he's always we see him just kind of walking around with his shirt off and like guitar on his back like he seems like he looks like a normal dude but he'll walk by us and he'll always just say something off the wall like something that makes no sense like oh yeah the politicians from quebec are over uh, i hope they go through with it. and then he keeps walking and just goes like yeah. all right man like see you later like and he's got this smile on his face and we're like okay that guy's crazy but then part of you feels like is that guy in reality or am I in reality? Like, oh, my reality so, seems like fake compared to his or something. Like, yeah, right, right. My, my thought experiment for this is the idea I have is, okay, you take two points traveling the same path, X and Y, right? So they're both experiencing the same point. So if you picture reality as this sort of huge sphere of little points of uh, experience uh, that contain everything that both parties understand is what's happening. So like uh, X and Y are both sitting on this plane of reality and they both assume every, all things are going to continue along the same path, right? Yep. Uh, in the way that they have, like trains are going on this way. You know, Y could decide that A is going to happen next and X could decide that B is going to happen next. If we have an infinite amount of universes, X and Y could both travel to A and both travel to B and that experience would st- keep happening. Does that make any sense? So the like the way I think about it is we all have these little like conscious awareness has a little bit of influence on the larger uh, picture that's that's happening that's unfolding, okay. but together collectively humans have an even larger thumbprint on what's happening uh, yes. combined with all the other conscious things. So it's like it's like a hierarchy of influence. So yeah. but that's the the crazy thing is like you know, you hear these stories about any spiritual story obviously over thousands of years could be changed and and blown out of proportion and stuff but i was just watching this documentary called holy hell about this guy who started a cult but it started off as like this love fest thing and he would basically give these people uh i forget what he called it but he would like you know stare at them and they would just feel like they were tripping like whatever he was putting off or putting out was so intense yeah and again it had to have been a, a, a shared decision right the person experiencing that I mean, who know? You can't say was it completely in their mind? Was it in, was he was a hypnotist? So like, was he hypnotizing? Either way, like that interaction was creating this reality where this person started making themselves trip or yeah. have this elation just by this guy's presence. Yeah. So, I mean, going along that argument, it's like, well, maybe he had he had so much confidence in his belief of what reality was or whatever his abilities were. That temporarily, at least, he was able to control the the wheel. That was I'm trying to think of the right words. He control the situation a little more and like move the path. And I feel like yes. when I'm with my brother when he's bipolar, I feel like he's got he's shifting the path just a little bit. But like if I can stick to my materialist roots and keep us both grounded <laughs> in yeah. what's supposed to be happening, then we're fine. But like. You know, it's like weird. It's like if I were to if I were to give in a little bit to that sort of mania, and you like open your door to the possibility, and you yourself became manic, then well, then you'd both be in a completely different reality. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> does reminds, that make any it, sense? It, it does, and it, it, yeah, it's kind of hard to follow, but it reminds me of a couple things. It reminds me of. Uh, for one, just when people are on like psychedelics and they kind of sometimes uh, have a bit 
their defenses are a bit down as far as they're inf- being influenced. So right. you could like tell someone like, right, "Hey, right. you got to go jump off that bridge," and they might like start to walk over to the bridge, and you'd be like, "Oh no, I was just kidding." Like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the, when you were talking about the the collective imprint, that kind of just reminds this may be a weird connection, but it reminds me of when people play the game Jinx. Like when you say something at the same time as someone else. And then you say jinx, but like, why? I, I, I get right. that's just boiled down to coincidence, but it's that just kind of shows the collective mind. Like, when, especially if you said like two or three words at the same time as someone else, do you ever have that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, it's, or like, do you ever just wonder why you're even holding certain viewpoints when you're in a conversation? Like, have you ever just stopped? Like, somebody says something and it triggers something in you, and you like start arguing against it yeah and then do you ever like while you're doing that also analyze why you're actually saying it like if you're getting into an argument about something political or anything and you're like oh i'm actually just regurgitating something yeah. that somebody told me on the radio yeah and like there's no way to validate that point. i don't know there's just it's there's so much wrapped up in society i feel like most people's opinions and viewpoints are just well um, nothing's original like everything's borrowed right right um, yeah, I, it was a Picasso quote, right? It's great. What is it? Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Yeah, yeah. I never understood yeah. that quote, and it's mean different things to me over time. But to me, it means like if there's a concrete idea or way to do something, or like we were talking before about the the society, the entity that is society, it has this right. technology or a way of doing something that it's it's developed over years, over many lifetimes of different humans. And it's perfected it. And then, so that idea is out there in the ether, right? And one of us picks up on it and regurgitates it, whether it's like a painting technique or, or a, a ideolo- ideological thing or something. Yeah, it's all borrowed. Oh, not, not borrowed because I think the borrowing part of that quote refers to how you could take an idea and try to do it yourself but kind of fuck it up. Right. Where stealing right. W- would be to actually take the con- take it the exact way that they did it, which is the correct and show it as it method, is. and yeah. show it as it is, do it how it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Yeah. No. Actually, that brings me to so what are it's like internet lore or internet mythology because it's a, it's just an amazing reflection of what we just about with um, instead of boring like real concepts, uh, people create just these fictitious ideas. So something like, you've heard of David Icke or like the lizard idea. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like taking an idea like that and then someone else picks it up and then they'll explain, well, they'll build on it by saying, oh, it's lizard people are actually in control of the archons and then they'll reference some, like the archons or this is this concept the Romans had about um, entities that were outside of our existence that could affect us but couldn't enter into our existence. You know, so they'll be like, okay, you know, and so like, a lot of these have you ever listened to conspiracy people online? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, it's super fun because I, the thing I always want to know is does this person truly believe what they're saying? Yes. Or are they like right, or are they just I don't know, is it not a ploy but have they convinced themselves yes. fully? No, they have. I've been thinking about this a lot lately because uh even with the passing of the the 9/11 um date uh yeah you know you social media again every around that time of the year people bring out their little theories and right you know but but meanwhile the rest of the year they don't want to they don't want george bush to be hung or whatever they're so mad on 9-11 because they think it was an inside job but they forget it three days later right so it makes me think that they don't really believe 
whatever you know and there's different camps like whether in- i think it's just a release valve again going back to what i was saying how everyone's just feeling anger for some reason or some kind of frustration with life that they don't know how to explain yeah. and they just want to point it at something yes. it's like they have this this huge tank of like hate and anger and they got a hose and they're just looking for somewhere to pour it out <laughs> oh, that's such like, a good analogy yeah that, that's exactly what it is man it, that's the hardest part about being a especially for like I just want to be chill and, and have cool with humans and people. The moment you get in these large groups, you look for, for anything to validate a, a reason to express unhappiness and anger. You know, it's like the slightest trigger. Someone's walking down the street, someone gets bumped with an elbow. Yeah. Most people, they shake it off. But if somebody's like carrying around all this anger and frustration, you know, it's just this instant outpour. I mean, it's fun to watch from the outside, but when you encounter it, it's, it's intense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I know you wanted to talk about Alan Moore a bit, but we get there. Yeah, well, let's. Uh, yeah, tell me a bit about him before we wrap it up, then, because I I've seen the movie, but uh, I didn't actually read The Watchmen. So he, this guy just seems crazy. He's like a cultist, ceremonial magician, anarchist. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's. I think he's more of a performer than anything else. Uh, the uh, thing I dig about him most is actually his ethics. Like, uh, so he doesn't. He doesn't take money any of his film royalties because of some like disagreements he's had with the companies in the past oh, and instead wow. he gives he gives all the money to the artists who created it oh shit um, so he, he sticks to his guns when it comes to that like uh the whole the whole magic thing i think is is fascinating too because anyone that's like really willing to go there i think is pretty fascinating um yeah. i don't know how much he believes in it but the way he explains it which is is interesting to me is that a magician is someone who can like cause influence uh, with their will. So it's like an Aleister Crowley. I was just going to mention Crowley, yeah. But like basically, it's you can take a story. You you can you can take out a king by telling the right story, right? It's the whole pen is mightier than the sword. If you yeah, create yeah. the right type of art, you can actually influence things that are happening and like. And if you look at V for Vendetta, like it was a pretty good predictor, you know, where England kind of headed. I mean, granted, George Orwell had already written 1984 and everything else, but his whole, this whole monitoring state. Right. And I, I just, the thing that, the other thing I find I'm really fascinating or I really appreciate about him is that he's trying to make comics more like novels. Like he talks about them as if they're novels. He's, it's like trying to elevate the art form. It's not about the commercial side at all or like the sales. And, and what's being and what you're, um, so what would you recommend I check out? I'll definitely probably check out the Watchmen now that you've told me more about Alan Moore. Like, yeah, I could send you some links too, but definitely check out Day Tripper. It's by one of my favorite team ups, uh, Gabriel Ba and Fabian Moon. Okay. Uh, it's a, it's really cool. It's about a guy that writes obituary columns for a living, but I don't want to give anything else okay. away. But it's just like an everyday story. It's not like a superhero anything. It's nothing sensational. It's just a really no. cool everyday story. Um, Mouse was, was pretty good. It's about a guy talking with his father about World War II and what he went through in the concentration camps. But it's they're parabled by their mice, and the oh. Nazis are cats. Uh, I mean, there's. I'm going to send you links to some other stuff because yeah, I don't want to sure. name anything off the top. But, uh, but yeah. I mean, th- that's the cool thing to me about comics is, is it can be elevated to a higher art form and, uh, you know, use amazing visuals to tell cool stories. 
Yeah, no, that that that's that's really cool. Like, I never, th- I just didn't put those two together. Like, th- just considering how there's so many just interesting and cool writers, but also the the art itself is very like just pushed to the next level. Like all the time, it's just so. Yeah. Cool man. <laughs> Dope man. Yeah. Uh. So yeah. Thanks for uh, doing this, eh? We'll talk. All to right. You. Later, Deke. Okay, buddy. Bye.